The EU Parliament has passed its first ever report calling for stronger ties with Taiwan. The report's author, Swedish MEP Charlie Vamers and German political scientist Reinhard Biedermann, tells us why Taiwan is becoming more important to the EU and Germany. Stash Butler also talks with DoubleThink Labs' Wu Mingxuan about how Taiwan is fighting disinformation from China. Finally, in hashtag Taiwan, I'm going to tell you about a non-Taiwanese YouTuber who traveled 2,300 kilometers to spread Taiwanese culture. This is Taiwan Insider. It's a historic moment. The EU Parliament's nearly 700 lawmakers in a landslide passed a report calling for closer ties with Taiwan. Here's the report's author, Charlie Vemers, MEP, telling the Parliament why the EU should support Taiwan. Taiwan is a like-minded partner with whom Europe shares many common values. In a region where this is not always a given, in light of Taiwan's robust democracy and technologically advanced economy, it is crucial that the EU and Taiwan pursue a comprehensive and enhanced partnership that underpins the rules-based order. The EU must, despite Chinese pressure, strongly advocate for Taiwan's meaningful participation as an observer in meetings, mechanisms, and activities of international bodies, including the World Health Organization. Mr. Vemers told insider Stash Butler why the EU wants closer ties with Taiwan at this time. Right now we see uh, a rise of Chinese belligerence, disinformation, and hostility against the West. And many of the like-minded democratic partners around the world, such as the EU, the US, Japan, South Korea, India, and Australia, have come to realize the urgent need to cooperate together in confronting the increasingly overt Chinese bullying. Um, and given Taiwan's own difficult relationship with mainland China, including uh, continuous uh, Chinese belligerence against the island, Taiwan can serve as a very important example of how to withstand Chinese pressure, belligerence, and disinformation campaigns in both uh, the Chinese-speaking uh, world as well as uh, in the English-speaking world, while standing strong on, on values such as freedom, democracy, and, and human dignity. And uh, also, um, Taiwan has a very advanced, robust economy. It's an economy that holds a very strong position in the world economy, and it encapsulates the prototype for modernization digitalization and economic growth. I mean, not to forget that uh, Taiwan has become a major player in the production of, of uh, semiconductors, uh, leading edge chips. So in its very own right, uh, Taiwan is uh, a, an important economic partner for the European Union. Now, your report calls for increased official exchanges between the EU and Taiwan. What form do you see those exchanges taking? Well, historically, the EU and many member states have been uh, very careful to avoid any high-level exchanges with Taiwanese officials because of Chinese pressure. And my report fully disagrees with that. 
believes that European leaders uh, need to meet with uh, their Taiwanese counterparts publicly and openly. We need to have meetings between our heads of states, our foreign ministers, as well as secretary generals and director generals of our various ministry and ministries and departments in member states as well as uh, in uh, the European institutions. The spokesman for Germany's leading party, the Social Democrats, also spoke out in favor of stronger ties for Taiwan this week. I asked German political scientist Reinhard Biedermann at Danjiang University if that signals a change in German policy towards Taiwan. Social Democrats actually, they uh, do not have made a very strong position concerning to protect or support Taiwan. There are other parties in the potential government, namely the Greens and the Liberals, that uh, spoke much, much stronger out in favor of Taiwan. However, what I think is that overall, the, the long-term foreign policy of Germany since some 30 years always has been the assumption of uh, change through trade. And this change through trade assumption was supported by the Social Democrats, but also by the Conservatives by the Social Democrats because it reminds us about the 1970s East politic that when we do more trade with the Soviet Union and its allies then this will lead to a change in the Soviet Union and in its behavior to the West. And the conservatives always assume that change through trade is a very good, let's say, excuse for doing more business. So the big two major big governmental parties in the last 30 years both supported uh, change through trade. And I think that will change um, no matter which government will be in power um, after the conclusions are made. I think that uh, the Social Democrats are particularly concerned about that we do not have change through trade, that the human rights situation in China is going in an opposite direction and not as the Social Democrats would like to see. And from a conservative position, the point is more that the economic relations between Europe, Germany and China are not developing in a way um, as they wish they, 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 they should be. So from both um, bigger parties in the government, we have uh, a new assessment of China. But we should not forget the smaller parties, especially the Liberals and the Greens, which have a stronger supporting role for Taiwan since a few years. Well, I know you've been watching German-Taiwan ties closely. What do you see for upcoming uh, German-Taiwan ties in, let's say, the coming year or so? Oh, this is a very difficult question because there are too many variables we can hardly uh, overlook right now. It depends, everything depends on China, how China reacts, whether China is increasing its aggressions. So when China is increasing its aggressions, is uh, more often sending airplanes into the Ardis and so on, then I think the German-European statements will become stronger. It is also possible in, in, the, in the middle run that, um, for instance, Germany yeah, and, and the European Union enact some sort of economic sanctions um, in, in some fields. I won't exclude it f from right now. But for Germany, 
Taiwan is very important also from an economic perspective, of course. It's not only the trade balance we have. I think the UN Taiwan trade between 50 and 60 billion euro per year. But it's also that Taiwan is very important in certain key sectors, especially when it comes to semiconductors. Our German car industries now, uh, they do not have enough semiconductors anymore. So we urgently need uh, semiconductors from, from Taiwan. So Taiwan is also geoeconomically important uh, for Germany and for, for the EU. And this, of course, also increases, let's say, the stakes for Germany and for the EU to support Taiwan stronger than in the past. Taiwan faces constant pressure from China, and it's not just military pressure either. Even though Chinese warplane incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone are pretty commonplace, well, China sends a lot of disinformation Taiwan's way as well. Now, Stash Butler spoke with researcher Wu Mingxuan to find out what kind of threats Taiwan faces and how it's fighting back. So DoubleThink Lab conducts research, on, I mean, in your own words, on these contemporary threats to democracy. What kind of contemporary threats to democracy is Taiwan facing at this moment in time? The threat to the Taiwanese democracy that we're facing for all the time is basically the China uh, government that is promoting another way of the governance and try to um, convince our Taiwanese people having another uh, lifestyle or governance model. But with the new technology, there's a lot of uh, misinformation or disinformation campaign that we've been seeing, observed uh, in the past um, few years, um, try to influence our elections or influence our um, uh, public opinions on certain topics. Basically, down to the word is that divide our society is the ultimate goal for their actions. How is Taiwan fighting back against this kind of disinformation? Uh, fortunately, I think uh, even though we, we've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, this type of disinformation, but fortunately, I think the resistance of the civil society of Taiwan is quite strong. And um, um, there's a lot of uh, action being taken um, by the civil society organization like Taiwan Fat Checking Center or other fact checking community, um, volunteers group, uh, trying to do more, not only the fact check, but how to disseminate those fact check results to the general public um, by using like um, messenger app, um, a chat bot, or um, just go directly to the community, uh, organize volunteers group, um, having a lot of offline activities to do media literacy, education, lots of things. So um, I think uh, this whole uh, disinformation or misinformation um, um, problem is really um, brought a lot of the civil society organization together uh, to, to try to fight back. I mean, I've spoken to you know, representatives of, of European, uh, particularly governments, um, and many of them look to Taiwan not only for you know its economic strength and and for kind of key partnerships in in specific uh, industries, but also because they view it as a kind of sandbox, the kind of front line, if you like, against uh, misinformation and disinformation campaigns, some of which uh, originate in China. What lessons can other countries learn from Taiwan in in fighting this kind of phenomenon? 
I think the um, lesson we are still exploring right now from Taiwan is that the whole a whole society approach, not only the uh, government they can um, responsible to do the fact check, but also there is an independent fact checking initiative uh, or organizations here um, to to do their own work um, and work with some independent media or um, even mainstream media organization to publish those stuff. So I think the whole society approach is what we need um, and we we see that as also building up a um, resistance of a democracy and build a safeguard for um, our um, democracy. Next up, Leslie looks at one YouTuber's mission to sell Taiwanese ice cream in Palau in hashtag Taiwan. This is Ku. He's a French YouTuber living in Taiwan. This is a peanut ice cream roll. It's a traditional Taiwanese dessert that consists of ice cream, cilantro, peanut brittle, rolled up in a flour wrap. Today's topic is at the cross-section of this French YouTuber and peanut ice cream rolls. What do I mean by that? Well, last Saturday, Ku uploaded a video to YouTube which is now receiving rave reviews. Last month, Ku ate 10,000 calories worth of taro products to prove how much he loves, well, taro. And then he made a donation to Taiwan's International Cooperation Development Fund, which is developing taro farms in Palau. Palau is a country in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's an archipelago consisting of over 500 islands, and it's one of Taiwan's diplomatic allies. In total, Ku donated 50,000 new Taiwan dollars to the ICDF, which is close to 1,800 US dollars. As a show of gratitude, the ICDF invited Ku to visit Palau to check out the taro farms he helped support. Ku agreed to go, but he said he wanted to bring a piece of Taiwanese culture with him to share with the Palauans. Ku said he found out that Palau is hot and the people there like to eat ice cream, so he thought Taiwan's ice cream peanut rolls would be the best item to share with the Palauan people. Ku spent some time developing a recipe for taro ice cream to use in his rolls. Back in the day, and I mean like 50-60 years ago, Taiwanese ice cream vendors rode around on bicycles. They'd honk their horns to let people know that they were nearby, and that's why, in Taiwan, Ice cream is sometimes called bapu bapu because that's the sound an ice cream bike makes. Ku purchased a 60-year-old traditional ice cream bike, packed it up, and flew it with him to Palau. When he got there, Ku visited taro farms and using the local taro, he made his ice cream. Ku then unpacked his ice cream bike and hit the streets giving away peanut ice cream rolls in exchange for subscriptions to his YouTube channel. You know what? That sounds pretty smart. Maybe I should be trading ice cream for YouTube subs. Ku rode around Palau on an unwieldy antique bike with a big metal box filled with homemade ice cream in tow. He went to a Palauan Independence Day event and that's where his business took off. Unfortunately, his goods were no match for the hot tropical weather and his ice cream melted halfway through the event. At that point, he started giving away the ice cream on its own and not in a peanut roll format. While there, Ku ran into the French ambassador to Palau and asked her to try some Taiwanese ice cream. She seemed to really like it, but maybe she was just being diplomatic. But at the end of the video, Ku had a chance to have one last VIP try his ice cream. And that was Palau's vice president, and she seemed to really sincerely love the ice cream. So let's take a second to unpack here. A French YouTuber went to another country to spread Taiwanese culture. 
it's not hard to understand why this video is so popular in Taiwan. Ku's commitment to authenticity, from developing his own ice cream recipe to bringing with him an actual vintage ice cream bike is just plain heartwarming. His actions would be equivalent to if I lived in France and traveled to say Greenland to spread French culture. Here's the thing though. There is no way that I know as much about French culture as Ku does about Taiwanese culture. And that alone is impressive enough. Before we leave you, here's a look at some of the other news stories that are on our radar. Police have arrested a Taiwanese YouTuber on suspicion of being behind a series of deepfake porn videos. The video showed the faces of over 100 celebrities and politicians superimposed over porn actors using AI technology. Investigators believe the man and two accomplices raked in over 11 million NT dollars or 400,000 US dollars by selling the videos online. Both President Tsai Ing-wen and Justice Minister Tsai Jing-xiang say they will work to amend the law so that it more adequately covers deepfake technology. The train driver responsible for the fatal derailment of a Puyuma Express train in 2018 has been sentenced to four and a half years in prison for negligent homicide. The driver disabled a system that would have slowed the train automatically when it went over the speed limit. The train was moving at 66 kilometers per hour over the speed limit when it hit a curve in the tracks and derailed, killing 18 and injuring more than 200. The sentence can be appealed. This year's Taipei LGBT Pride Parade is set to be an entirely virtual affair. The organizers say they originally made plans to hold the event online earlier in the year, when Taiwan was in the midst of a COVID outbreak. They say the recent drop in cases has come too late to organize an in-person event. Still, the event, slated for October 30th, will have all the elements of the parades of years past. Everything from forums discussing LGBT issues to drag shows. And we're back in the studio with our final question of the day. And you guys saw my hashtag today. We saw how a French YouTuber went to Palau to That's spread so Taiwanese cool. culture. Yeah. Now I'd like to pose a question to you. If you were to go to another country, what would you take as a cultural symbol to, of Taiwan to share with the locals? Stash? Uh, well, I think uh, my host country would be very grateful if I brought chips. Ooh. Uh, oh, so, particularly the, the semiconductor variety. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, seeing as there's a, a shortage, That's I think I could, yeah, I could get a really good rate, I think, of quite a few. I was thinking potato chips, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I was all off. Natalie? I would take bubble tea. I mean, who doesn't love bubble tea? It's fun and chewy and delicious. Everybody do love some bubble tea. Why not? And uh, what I would bring, I would actually bring, well, some instant noodles. Because, uh, you know. Oh, that's a big deal in Taiwan. When you travel, there's like a big embargo on like agricultural products, right? You can't really bring fruit. You can't really bring meat. And if you do, you got to declare it. But instant noodles, I think, are, so are okay. <laughs> and then uh, Taiwan's got some pretty good flavors of instant noodles. They got like this really special one from the uh, Taiwan Liquor Corporation, which is like chicken stewed in uh, rice wine. Oh, wow. And that's, a, that's an instant noodle, right? Wow. And it's that's delicious. Taiwan style. Yeah. So that's what I would do. You win some friends with that. Yeah. Well, you guys, we have a celebration today because uh, we have over 10,000 YouTube subscribers. That's right. And we Ooh. want to uh, introduce you to our English team and celebrate a little bit. Come on, on the set, guys. Come on, guys. So our English team here is Emma. This is Emma. And that's uh, Shirley and Thomas. And Vicky's going to bring our little celebration dessert. And if you haven't subscribed to RTI English, uh, which is our YouTube channel name, please do subscribe. Yeah. We'd love for you to 
uh, join us and subscribe and follow us. That's right. You can follow us on Facebook as well um, and also on, on our Twitter. That's well. right. Our handle is Taiwan Insider. Send us a message. Send us some love. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, guys, until next week. You know what? Let's try and hit 11,000 subscribers <laughs> next week. <laughs> Let's do that. And then I can get more cupcakes. All right. <laughs> See you guys around. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Tensions with China are higher than they've been in over the past 40 years. At least that's what our defense minister here in Taiwan, Cho Guozhen, said, and he recently said. China could be ready for a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by 2025. Taiwan has seen over 600 Chinese military planes come into its air defense identification zone so far this year. Military tensions are high. And today, I speak with a top military strategist in Taiwan. Danjiang University professor at the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies, Professor Alexander Huang. I ask him what he thinks of our defense minister's recent remarks that tensions are the highest that they've ever been with China in over the past 40 years, and that China could be ready to invade Taiwan by 2025. If we are talking about 40 years, it's about you know, the time frame when Deng Xiaoping started uh, the uh, reform and modernization program in China. Uh, indeed, uh, I think uh, uh, Defense Minister Cho uh, had served in the military for about 40 years. I think he was talking about his lifetime experience of his uh, professional uh, life. And, um, and it is unprecedented uh, military pressure over Taiwan uh, in 40 years. Uh, it is possible, of course, uh, debatable, that whether China would acquire the capability to wage a full invasion against Taiwan in four years in 2025. But on the other hand, we have to understand that the minister's estimate needs to be looked at seriously. Uh, he must have the intel policy support. Uh, he must have political judgment uh, when he spell out a, a particular year as challenging. Uh, as an expert of uh, PRC military uh, affairs, 2025 does uh, have one special meaning for me because Xi Jinping started his uh, deepening defense and military reform in 2015. He changed the organization of Central Military Commission. Uh, he regrouped the seven military regions into five theaters. And he had pushed very hard for any PRC military training and exercises that adhere to a real combat situation. So maybe for the People's Liberation Army 
2025 would be the 10th anniversary of their most recent reform and reorganization. It would be a perfect year for them to examine the uh, achievements of the 10-year monetary reform. They might be able to do something, but uh, it, it has to be a political decision. Uh, we understand that Chinese Communist Party has a famous slogan that party controls the gun, now the gun controls the party. So the final decision will be the, uh, the party center that with Xi Jinping at the core. So for many analysis, uh, I would not, of course, I would not neglect uh, the commander's uh, perspective on their ability and their willingness and intention but everything stops at Xi Jinping's desk. I think uh, when Xi Jinping promised or told American president that he would like to resolve the Taiwan issue in a peaceful way, uh, I hope that uh, the United States president will say not only uh, peaceful, but in a non-coercive way. And that's more complete, of course, uh, presidents, politicians, party chairmen are not academics. Sometimes they have their other general concerns. Sometimes they don't need, uh, they are not required to have precise wording when they talk about issues. So my reading is that Minister Cho, with his judgment, we are getting into a very troubled uh, situation. The show of force from the People's Liberation Army Air Force uh, has been unprecedented. And that is why we need to be vigilant and understand that when we show our resolve, we do not uh, ignite conflict. Uh, we can talk about our uh, strong will to defend our homeland, but when we express our strong will, we also need to keep in mind that sometimes overstated uh, resolution uh, or will may hasten or trigger an even larger response. Mm. The key is to maintain peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. We don't want to see weakness but we are not in the position to speak in, from a position of strength either. Uh, and that is the art and limitation for any politicians or any political appointee in the government uh, to be responsible, uh, to have a cool-headed judgment on the difficult issues. That is Professor Alexander Huang, a top military strategist here in Taiwan. He performs war games all the time, thinking about how China may strike Taiwan. And uh, we'll be talking to him more about if he is afraid of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. <laughs> Ya na 
The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. I'm Natalie So, and you're listening to Taiwan Today. When Taiwan's defense minister says that cross-strait military tensions are higher than they've been in over 40 years, it is time to take notes. And uh, today I speak with a top military strategist in Taiwan. He teaches at the Strategic Studies Institute at Danjong University, where they practice war games and talk about military strategy. Professor Alexander Huang is also a former vice defense minister. I asked him how worried he is about an upcoming Chinese attack on Taiwan. So, Professor Huang, are you worried about a possible Chinese attack within the next few years? Well, the, I would say yes. I would say yes. Um, and I have my own reasons to make such an estimate. Uh, as I said, um, in four years, there will be 10th anniversary of Xi Jinping's defense reform. And in six years, in 2027, that will be the year of the People's Liberation Army Centennial. And uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping had reminded the People's Liberation Army in November last year that they have a goal of struggle, but he did not further get elaborate what that goal would be. And more importantly, 2027 would be, assumably, uh, the end of Xi Jinping's third term as the general secretary of the Communist Party. And, and uh, by 2027, he turned to the age of 74. Uh, would that be a time or a good time for him to retire? And we need to be very careful to think that uh, with almost everything centralized in one person and uh, enjoy such a status as the only strong man after Deng Xiaoping and be in power for 15 years. What he wanted to do in order to lay his legacy in the communist history in China and do something before he steps down, or he may wanted to initiate something and make it unfinished by 2027. So people will beg him to stay even for a fourth term to accomplish the mission. Uh, these are the war game scenarios that I'm dealing with on the weekly basis. <laughs> uh, so so I, I would be very, very uh, careful uh, to say, no, there's no sign of invasion. Uh, what I worry about is the, whether the government shares my concern and started to think 
that what if in four years or what if in six years and where should we put our money in? How can we invest and prepare the society and telling the ordinary people that it might happen. So be careful before you hit your keyboard when you, uh, before you begin to badmouth something. That's a, an approach that I think uh, lays on the responsibility of the ruling party and the government. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Huang, uh, for all of your thank thoughts. You. I've been speaking with a top military strategist in Taiwan, Professor Alexander Huang of the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies at Danjiang University. Professor Huang said the wisdom of Taiwan's leaders are very important in dealing with this pressure from China. Well, here's a taste of what President Tsai Ing-wen and the legislative president said during their National Day addresses just this month. Taiwan pulled out all the stops for its 2021 National Day celebrations on Sunday with grand parades, enormous flags and rousing speeches. RTI's Natalie Tso and Leslie Liao were on hand to interpret. Legislative President Yoshi Kun highlighted Taiwan's success containing COVID-19. Last year, Taiwan demonstrated its pandemic prevention and contained the disease. Not only that, but we helped other countries with their prevention efforts. Overseas Taiwanese representative Sherry Chen said Taiwanese people in countries around the world had helped Taiwan to face Chinese import bans. We bought up the surplus of Taiwan's pineapples when China suddenly banned imports of the fruit into the country in March. We promoted and marketed the fruit in support of Taiwan's farmers. Then President Tsai took the stage. Beginning in May, Taiwan faced its greatest challenge since the outbreak of COVID-19. Most of all, I want to thank all of the people of Taiwan. At this difficult time, it was our unity that protected our country and our collective dedication to democracy that protected our beloved homeland. Taiwan today is no longer seen as the orphan of Asia, but as an island of resilience that can face challenges with courage. We'll help for an easing of cross-strait relations and will not act rashly. But there should be absolutely no illusions that the Taiwanese people will bow to pressure. In this inclusive country, nobody is judged based on when they arrived. Nobody is held accountable for the deeds of their ancestors. And nobody is excluded from our shared community because of where they came from. Let us move forward with confidence and pride as masters of our own destiny. Let us embrace our global role and make Taiwan a Taiwan for the world. That's how Taiwan's president and top officials are helping the nation face the challenges of military tensions with China. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to The Download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Stash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. 
Today, I continue my conversation with Dr. Alex Tichy of Academia Sinica. He tells me about the pitfalls of AI and why press attention on your work isn't always a good thing. All that coming up on the download. I asked Dr. Tichy how artificial intelligence is changing the field of astronomy. There are some times that machine learning is going to be more about scalability than it is about uh, doing better than humans. And um, more broadly, not just in astronomy, but machine learning is obviously taking over uh, the world in all kinds of different aspects. Uh, but it, it clearly has limits and it is limited by what we ask it to do. And it makes mistakes all the time. Right? It will do these things that you didn't really think it was going to do, like the Twitter algorithm that's trying to figure out what's the most important thing about the picture. And, you know, it turned out it was always focusing on the white people. You know, and people were doing all these experiments. I don't know if you remember that when people were uploading these pictures. And it was just always sort of zeroing in on these things. Now, no one at Twitter said, let's always focus on the white people. You know? uh, but the algorithm was just sort of having this weird side effect. And they said, okay, well, we need to kind of go back to the drawing board. And you can't even tell the algorithm, like, stop focusing on the white people all the time. You know, you can't even code that. It's just something that has, it has sort of learned accidentally, and you need to kind of go back and figure out why it's doing these weird things. But machine learning in the short term will definitely keep doing weird things like that, and so we can't become too reliant on it. So you see kind of machine learning in, 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 in your field as doing maybe more of the kind of grunt work of kind of sifting through all this data than necessarily the kind of groundbreaking sort of big front page making kind of discoveries. Yes, I mean, so, you know, there is these things called the unsur uh, unsupervised learning, for example, where um, people are trying to see if it can identify new phenomena. So we, you know, humans have said, oh, well, this thing falls into three categories. But then if your algorithm says, well, guys, there's really four categories here. And if you felt really good about the performance of this thing, then you might say, maybe this is something different that we have overlooked, you know, so it can still kind of make those important kind of discoveries. Uh, but by and large, um, you know, our own sort of biases are going to be uh, encoded in it. And uh, as you say, it, it will do a job very well of identifying things that eventually, I think, at least in the short term, a real thinking human being is going to have to go look at it and, and make sense of what, uh, what the machine is uh, finding. And sometimes it's going to be legit and sometimes it'll, it'll be trash. And, um, and we'll still have to, you'll still have to have somebody there sort of uh, sorting through it all. Turning now to another bit of research you did, um, which was something uh, perhaps a bit more kind of theoretical. Um, this is this, this, this research you did looking into kind of the uses of lasers to hide the presence of an atmosphere and whether that was theoretically possible and, and what kind of energy you would need to do that. I mean, how, how, tell me about that, 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 that paper. <laughs> well, you've done your research. Uh, that was a paper I did very early uh, in uh, my... Uh, PhD studies with my former advisor, uh, David Kipping is his name, and he is just got ideas coming out of his uh, ears all the time. He's really astonishing. You know, he's one of these people that, uh, you know, I hope he can get some uh, major discovery that really puts his name in the books uh, long term, because his work is just, um, I don't know many other astronomers who have so many creative ideas just kind of constantly coming out of him. And he's also a beast. I mean, he can write a paper in a weekend sometimes. And that was exactly what happened in that case, is something like on a Friday, he's sort of thinking, well, you know, 
uh, we talked about these transits before, right? The planet is passing in front of the star, blocking out some of the starlight. And he said, well, you know, would it be possible to kind of like fill that missing starlight in in some way? And he started running the numbers and he said, well, what would you need? Well, you could shoot a very powerful laser out right at that instant and, you know, sort of make up that missing starlight. And he determined through some, you know, back of the envelope calculations that this was very much possible with, you know, really like almost present day technology. We don't have this thing built, uh, but we could certainly build it. Um, and that's the sort of thing where he's, you know, he's been interested in exomoons. He's really sort of a pioneer in the exomoons field, but he's also always been interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, and that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, this is another whole subfield thinking about uh, ways that we might detect uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. And so that was a, you know, sort of a paper that uh, he and I wrote in about a month. And I just kind of, you know, contributed some calculations for it. We asked about like, well, maybe you could just hide the, the signatures of life in your atmosphere rather than hiding the planet entirely. And it was just kind of an interesting thought experiment, but it got picked up in uh, the press. And, uh, you know, this was sort of uh, my first instance of interfacing with a science journalism. Um, that uh, it's clearly a very sort of sensational idea and it's almost like a catnip for people and they will write this article and, and say, you know, astronomers propose that we hide the Earth with this laser. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's a little bit of a game of telephone and, uh, and then people, you know, even astronomers, I mean, it can, it can affect people's interpretation of what we do all day as astronomers. Oh, I can't believe we're funding this kind of work. Uh, and then it will even affect, you know, maybe how other colleagues will see you. Oh, I saw you had this really sensationalist paper. I, I read the article. Yeah, you know, I didn't read your, I didn't read the journal article. I read something on space.com or whatever about how you want to hide the earth <laughs> with lasers. And, uh, you know, so it can be kind of tricky for us as scientists uh, to sort of navigate uh, science journalism in these, in these sorts of uh, circumstances. Maybe I suppose, you know, you, you talk about having kind of reflected on that experience and perhaps learned from it. I mean, how how would you do things differently? And also, how do you think, on the other end, journalists should do things differently? Uh, I don't know that we would do things much differently. I mean, I guess the, the best thing that we could do is um, just not answer uh, journalists' questions about such a thing, you know. I, I mean... The first time someone calls you, hey, I'd like to write an article about your work, you say, oh, awesome, great, you know, and then you start getting more and more inquiries and you start feeling like, well, maybe this is, maybe this is getting a little out of hand, you know, I mean, we, we really don't need to be getting this much attention. Um, and so what am I supposed to do? Like, say I'm not taking any more comments? I mean, that seems kind of strange, right? Like, well, why, why won't you talk to us? You know, <laughs> Are odd. you hiding something? Are you hiding yeah, your exactly. space lasers? Right. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the same thing, actually, with this sort of metagen experience where, you know, the first time someone reaches out, I say, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. But uh, the third or fourth, you're kind of like, I, I, maybe I should just not uh, be, you know, uh, giving more fuel to this fire because I think it's un unnecessary. Um, and then there have been other cases, of course, where my work, you know, especially with Kepler-1625, again, has gotten um, interest from uh, journalists. You worry about things get, getting sensationalized, and so uh, to actually speak with the journalists is a way that we might uh, sort of uh, be a check against that. Because I'm getting to, you know, I'm getting quoted directly, so I can say, let's not sensationalize this too much, or we're not claiming this, we're claiming this instead. Uh, I'd rather have my quotes in the article. Uh, so that at least I can somewhat be on record. Uh, when it comes to journalists, you know, I, I don't pr presume to tell journalists uh, 
how to do their job is a very difficult job, especially I think being a science journalist or even astronomy journalist. You um, there's there's an enormity of stuff out there to know and to report on a, on a daily basis, and there's no possible way that even someone who spends all their time writing on, on astronomy can know understand all the ins and outs of this study or that study. And it's a rat race, right? I mean, you're looking almost on a daily basis. I'm sure you can speak to that, right? That you're constantly looking for, what can I write about today? And, um, and you don't even have time to fully ingest this stuff. Um, and you're talking to people. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of chatter, especially when we have sensationalist articles. There's all kinds of uh, particularly uh, sensational sort of uh, headlines about uh, this interstellar object called Oumuamua. And a lot of astronomers get particularly bent out of shape about the sort of the credulous coverage of these otherwise sort of outlandish uh, uh, claims in the views of a lot of astronomers. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, Dr. Tichi tells me why talking about the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence is a real balancing act for astronomers. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on The Download. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan faces constant pressure from China, and it's not just military pressure either. Even though Chinese warplane incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone are pretty commonplace, well, China sends a lot of disinformation Taiwan's way as well. Now, Stash Butler spoke with researcher Wu Mingxuan to find out what kind of threats Taiwan faces and how it's fighting back. So DoubleThink Lab conducts research, on, I mean, in your own words, on these contemporary threats to democracy. What kind of contemporary threats to democracy is Taiwan facing at this moment in time? The threat to the Taiwanese democracy that we're facing for all the time is basically the China uh, government that is promoting another weight of the governance and try to um, convince our Taiwanese people having another uh, lifestyle or governance model. But the, with the new technology, there's a lot of uh, misinformation or disinformation campaign that we've been seeing, observed uh, in the past um, few years, um, try to influence our elections or influence our um, uh, public opinions on certain topics. Basically, down to the word is that divide our society is the ultimate goal for their actions. How is Taiwan fighting back against this kind of disinformation? Uh, fortunately, I think uh, even though we, we've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, this type of disinformation, but fortunately, I think that the resistance of the civil society of Taiwan is quite strong. and. Um, um, there's a lot of uh, action being taken um, by the civil society organization like Taiwan Fact Checking Center or other fact checking community um, volunteers group uh, trying to do more, not only the fact check, but how to disseminate those fact check results to the general public um, by using like um, messenger app, 
um, a chatbot or um, just go directly to the community, uh, organize volunteers group, um, having a lot of offline activities to do media literacy education, lots of things. So um, I think uh, this whole uh, disinformation or misinformation um, um, problem is really um, brought a lot of the civil society organization together uh, to to try to fight back. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.